Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Elephant in the Room. I'm Timmy. I'm Angela. And we have a special guest uh, today. Her name is Magda. And for those of you who don't know, Magda is a former CA, so, you know, she's still part of the club in my eyes. But (laughs) Magda, if you want to introduce yourself and kind of like what you do now. Yeah. um, First of all, I think this is a brilliant idea. So like good on both of you for kickstarting this on res. Um, Yeah, I'm a former community advisor. So I started um, a couple of years ago. I think my first year was 2018. And I was a CA in Yamnathka. And then I was a senior CA last year for Goa. And I graduated since. So not a CA anymore, but still very connected to the community. And now I'm just working um, in the consulting field. So I'm doing a lot of like EDI related work, equity, diversity, inclusion, um, teaching various like organizations or companies about anti-racism and like what it means to be anti-racist today especially since I think a lot of organizations and companies have sort of woken up following what happened in the summer of 2020. It's unfortunate that it took this long for people to realize, but um, life's been busy ever since. I think a lot of people are seeing the urgency. So that's what I've been up to since graduating. I'm glad to hear that you're thriving. So I want to start off because you said that you kind of work a lot with like EDI. Um, and like in the workplace and stuff like that. So I just kind of want to talk about what you've seen so far and what needs, like what still needs to be worked on a lot, needs a lot of improvement at this point in time. Yeah, that's a great question. Honestly, when I first got into this space, um, which was fall of 2020, I was shocked because to me, and you know, Angela and I, we've had these conversations a few times about race and racism, um, definitely as it relates to like the experience of marginalized communities on campus. But it really shocked me how little people know about anti-racism or about diversity, about equity or equality. I think the most surprising thing has been hearing from people that they don't understand systemic racism because I think to a lot of us, like all of us here, it's so obvious, like we don't even think about it. Like we live and breathe through these inequitable systems. And yet to hear white individuals say that, oh, I don't really understand systemic racism. Like, sure, I get racism, but is it really systemic? That was really shocking to me. And I've had to learn how to manage those emotions that come up when people say that, because I have a tendency to get very upset and like, just so frustrated. Like, how can you not see it? Like, are we still talking about this? Um, So that's the most surprising thing about this space, but it's also really reassuring to know that companies and organizations now are finding it a priority and it's tricky because some of them might be a little performative because they're trying to save themselves and save face. Um, But if anything, I'm glad to be a part of the process where I can sort of throw it in their face, at least gently, that this is really what's up, you know? I just found your comment actually pretty funny because I'm like, I feel like the fact that you need to kind of, you're the one that needs to take a step back and like kind of suppress your own emotions in order to educate people who 
are like actively being ignorant, you know, I, like it's kind of like, I find that so unfair. Like you shouldn't be put in that position yeah. where, you know, you can't express how you feel just because you need to educate other people, I guess. Yeah. But no, I feel that a hundred percent. It was such a hard transition for me because if I ever encountered racism um, previously, usually I would have very strong emotions about it and um, like say my opinions without a filter, like this is what it is. Um, Cause I don't think that the thoughts or beliefs that I hold are offensive. They're just hard to swallow for people who don't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but going into this space, I've really learned that because we have clients <laughs> and they pay us, I can't like, I can't just say it all, you know, like I really have to, what's that thing called? Like the polite sandwich or something. I don't know. <laughs> that is Like give compliments, then criticism then compliments. Yeah. So it's definitely a transition, not something I'm used to, but I also recognize that I chose to like step into this space, um, like being in the consulting world. So for black individuals or really people of color who choose, like, I don't want to educate. That's totally fair. And I, outside of work, I definitely don't take time out of my day or any of my energy to educate white people about racism or systemic racism because it's not my job. Yeah. As you should. (laughs) I think like when I talk to white people about systemic racism, usually I try to explain to them, I talk about a few things. Like part of it is understanding like what is race? What is ethnicity? What is indigeneity? And making sure that they understand we can't lump indigenous people with people of color like indigenous people are not people of color um so part of it is explaining um that part of the conversation is like the diversity that exists within people of color or BIPOC people if that's the term that you use um and then usually the conversation addresses okay well like what is white supremacy what is white privilege and when we talk about white supremacy it's always very like easy you know you're not a white supremacist hopefully maybe you are let's hope not um but the conversation is i always try to make sure they understand that white supremacy is not all about um the violence that we usually see in the media or like you know the white hats and the kkk and the pitchforks like white supremacy um really is just the idea that white people are superior or white people are the norm and so i think a lot of people hold um, white supremacist beliefs and don't realize it. And so addressing that is another piece of it. And then addressing white privilege and how white individuals have an unearned set of benefits is another part of it. And then ultimately the goal is to really explain to people that there is a larger system that you may not have built, but that you are complicit in that contributes to the enduring and historical and present racism that we see today. So racism can be very individualized, like unfortunately slurs and negative comments and stereotypes, but there is this larger uh, systemic factor. Like when we look at education curriculum, it's often told from a white person's lens or the white narrative. That is systemic racism. You know, in school, we learned all about Canadian settlers and look at these brave people who crossed the ocean and that's that's a white um, that's white narrative because that's that's ahistorical you know that's not what happened so I think explaining white supremacy in that or sorry um, uh, systemic racism in that sense helps if that makes sense 
So you talked about how, you know, sometimes you may think that some of these companies are hiring um, people to educate them on EDI um, is a little bit performative. So I kind of want to talk about uh, performative activism, um, especially now with social media, all Instagram posts, Instagram stories, all these things, especially during like this summer with like BLM. Yeah. Um, I kind of just wanted to hear your opinions and thoughts on that. Yeah, this is so tricky because I think a lot of what we've seen so far is very performative. So I always told myself that um, regardless of what I'm seeing today, like I can't make a conclusion about whether someone's actions are performative or not right now, but I'm going to see in 10 years, like how loud you are and like what you're actually doing. And I think in it's a lot more than just raising awareness. I think people don't realize that. Like, sure, you can post, you can have these really important dialogues and discussions, you can educate yourself, like that's part of it. I'm not saying that's performative, but that's the start. Really like true allyship is creating space for people um, who don't look like you, this is really for white people, um, to allow BIPOC individuals to step into opportunities that usually wouldn't go to them, you know? And I think in, uh, in like the university context, it's really difficult. You know, UFC is very, it's interesting. It's like a diverse campus, um, but there are areas where you can see where white people really dominate. Like for instance, my, ex my like first um, example that comes to mind is like sororities and fraternities on campus like very much white dominated spaces. And I don't think we talk about that enough at UFC. Granted, sororities and frats aren't really given a lot of weight in Canada, um, but that's something that comes to mind a lot. But I think white people need to understand that real allyship looks like creating opportunities. So not only welcoming people to the table that you're at, um, that you're privileged to sit at, but also leaving. So you can bring people on, but at some point you have to walk away. Like education, we see all these professors, very white. Like I'm a political science major. It's what I studied at uni and all of my professors were white and poli-sci. There, there was a white professor teaching African politics. So it's like part of the role of professors with that amount of privilege in these academic institutions is you're gonna need to retire. <laughs> Like you need to step aside. I know tenure is like really contentious, but it's the safeguarding of positions that keeps BIPOC individuals out. And so real allyship looks like sacrifice and it's not easy. It's not reading books by white authors who made millions and millions of dollars off of them. I'm calling out Robin DiAngelo right there. <laughs> so I think that's a, a part of allyship that I think people aren't ready to really confront, you know? Yeah, I think like going back a little bit in the, in the process of being an ally, you mentioned that posting and like um, really starting to starting a discourse about like the inequalities in, in life. Um, I want to know what are your thoughts on the people like they were silent during this period. It's like uh, during the summer of 2020, there were like the Blackout Tuesday and stuff like that. And all the protests and all those things that you see on stories. I want to know what your thoughts about like because people who were silent, because I know some people think that silence speaks volumes, and some people think, think that silence is not, does not have an equal say. 
So just uh, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, it's so tricky. I've thought about this. I think the black square thing that happened on social media was really like pointless. I don't know. I don't think that, I don't think posting a black square and not posting a black square made any difference in my personal um, like perception of someone. But it's really difficult with social media because, you know, if we're saying that, oh, you were quiet on social media and that means like that silence speaks volumes, but then there are plenty of individuals who aren't on social media as well. And so you can't really measure their form of activism if they don't have that visibility on various like social platforms, right? So it's tricky because I would hope that if you do have that platform, I would hope you'd say something, but at the same time, it's like, I don't want you to say something to just cover your, like to save face, right? So I don't know that I have like a perfect answer to that or a good one to say the least, but I think the goal ultimately is just to move beyond statements. You know, I think that's a part of it, but I also think that like we should be past the dialogue phase at this point, you know, like we've talked about this at length, like Angela and I last year had quite a few conversations talking about racism, um, white supremacy, like white privilege. And that was before BLM, in the summer. So clearly like these conversations have been going on with people of color and BIPOC individuals. So I don't know. I don't know that I have a good answer to that. I don't know how to, I don't know. I don't really look at um, other people's social media posts as like a measure of their allyship because I can't tell if it's performative or not. That's a really good point. And so like tying that into what you do currently right now, you mentioned that we're past the point of dialogue. Do you yeah. think a lot of the companies and people that you work with are still in that stage or they're like, they have progressed in the point of actions and sacrifice? It's um, unfortunately, <laughs> they're still in the dialogue phase. And um, it's really complicated because you have various uh, BIPOC individuals or racially minoritized people in the organization who raise all of these concerns, all of these issues. Um, a lot of them concern um, issues of advancement. So they may have a lot of BIPOC individuals. They may look diverse, but as you climb in the organization, it's more and more white. So the issue in that case is advancement. Like why aren't BIPOC individuals advancing in the, in the organization? So that's the trickiest part is when you have people who are a part of that organization that are way past um, the dialogue phase. And those are usually like BIPOC people. And then you have more senior officials who like still don't get it um, or they just don't understand how they've benefited from privilege. And it makes me think of, I feel like a few years ago, Judge Judy, you guys know Judge Judy? <laughs> she, she said, I think it was her, she said, oh, I'm all about the feminist movement, but like, I don't know, I just like worked really hard and that's why I'm here. And it's like just a complete oversight as to how the feminist movement like really propelled her and helped her as a white woman, you know? So you still see there are gaps in people's knowledge, which is why knowledge building and knowledge sharing is so important, but it's exhausting. Like it's exhausting having to have these conversations all the time. Yeah, and you talked about kind of feminism as white women. 
Um, so let's talk a little bit about intersectionality. Yes, we yeah, it. we love it. I like, so I know you're very <laughs> passionate about this topic. So I kind of want to hear about your experience as a Black woman, either growing up now um, in a white dominated city, um, kind of how that affected your view of yourself. Yeah. Um, and how it kind of affected how you kind of interacted with others as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's such a great question. And shout out to Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw. She's a black woman in the United States who coined the term intersectionality. So people should read up on her and learn more about her because it started as, um, she's a lawyer and it started as a case where I think it had to do with a car company wouldn't hire this black woman, but they didn't think they were being racist because they had policies that really um, propelled black men and then policies that protected white women. But as a black woman, you're sort of caught in between those two, um, like those two hard places. And Angela knows I wrote my thesis on intersectionality and we had many late nights and she really helped me talk through some of these concepts. So I'd say as a black woman, it's interesting that you say, what is it like growing up in sort of like a white city? Because you, if I'm not mistaken, Angela grew up in the Southwest. Yes. Right? Yeah. So I grew up in the Northeast and Northeast Calgary is not very white. Like it's very diverse. There's a lot of brown people, a lot of black people, um, a really significant Filipino um, population. The high school I went to was very, um, I'd say the largest demographics there were Asian, predominantly Filipino and black. So white students were very much the minority. Um, yeah, so I guess growing up, I didn't really, I didn't see myself as an outsider among my peers. It was more like teachers and, um, and people who had positions, I don't wanna say power necessarily, but authority. So like teachers had authority. And a lot of the teachers at my high school were white, despite the fact that our school population was overwhelmingly BIPOC individuals. So yeah, I'd say that's a factor, but I also might, this is kind of complicated, maybe too long of a story, but I grew up maybe like the first grades one to three, I went to school in the Southwest, predominantly white school. Me and my siblings were the only black kids in that school. And um, that was weird. Like that, I had, I had really negative experiences in that environment and there was an assignment when I was in first grade, we had to draw a self-portrait. And you know how there's the skin color pencil crayon? I was six, I didn't know anything. So I used the skin color pencil crayon because that's what we called it, but it was peach, right? And my teacher wouldn't let me go for recess until I fixed it. And he said, fix it, yeah. And it really hit me as a kid. I think that was like my first realization that I'm different, you know? And ever since then, I would like wish on shooting stars. And I would say that little poem, star night, star bright, first star I see tonight. I wish I may, I wish I might have this wish I wish tonight. And I would wish to be white with blonde hair and blue eyes, just like all the other girls in my class. So it definitely affected me. And I think today, when I think about intersectionality, I realize the many ways that I was disadvantaged as a black woman, not really like seeing how my brother benefited from being a boy and how my white counterparts or peers benefited from their whiteness. Um, but if anything, it's 
taught me more about how I also hold privilege. I'm able-bodied, like I'm cisgender. Um, I present and identify as a woman, so I don't have to worry about someone outing me. You know, I don't fear um, discrimination because of my sexual orientation. Um, I navigate through the world quite easily because I don't require any visual assistance or I'm not hard of hearing, you know? And if anything, it's, it's really encouraged me to step into this activism more. So this year I started learning ASL um, and that has been a very um, eye-opening experience. Yeah. So if anything, intersectionality calls on me to be better because I realized how five years ago I wasn't a very good activist for people who didn't look like me or didn't move through the world like me you know that's crazy like I've like never even like seen it like that but yeah it's it's hard to as a person I guess who is like has less privilege than other other communities or whatever you really always focus on what you don't have (laughs) or like how you struggle but you mean you also need to recognize the things that you take for granted in your everyday life, which is, yeah, that's crazy. Um, And I want to talk about, you said how you noticed your brother as a black man got like, what's the word? What did you say? You said. Maybe that it was easier for him. Yeah. He didn't experience the, the same challenges that I did. Yeah. So I was wondering, I know a lot of, typical African family dynamics mm-hmm. between the sons and the daughters. Yeah. Um, it's a very common thing. I've literally from every black w- woman I know has told me <laughs> about <laughs> the same thing, um, the same dynamics. So I just want to hear kind of like what your perspective on that is and what your yeah. experience was. No, that's real. And I agree. Like every black woman I tell, I talk to that has a brother, um, feels very similar sentiments. And I do want to recognize, like, it depends on, like, when we look at Africa, I'm Eritrean, so that's East Africa. Africa is so diverse. And even, like, Black Africa or Sub-Saharan Africa is so diverse. So culturally, there's a lot of um, variety. So there might be some matriarchal societies that don't prescribe to the same experience that I had. But boys in my culture and in my family very privileged they are like they're just catered to you know growing up my sisters and I had to do a lot of the cooking and cleaning and our parents were way harder on us Um, we weren't allowed to go out no sleepovers Um, even hanging out with friends was such a chore just asking parents if we could hang out with friends whereas my brother it's like oh yeah whatever go like there's no care in the world just come home alive you know like my brother I know maybe engaged in riskier behavior. And I was such a people pleaser as a kid. And I thought, oh, if I'm really good, if I behave really well, I'll be the favorite. And it never worked. (laughs) Like he was still the favorite. So it's, I don't understand it. I don't really know why boys are prized so much more. I think with my parents, there's a fear about the vulnerabilities of being a woman and understanding the violence that women experience, unfortunately. And so they definitely took that and ran with it. Um, Like they would say to me and my sisters, you can't do that because you're a girl. Like they did not hide it. They were very, like very direct. 
But Timmy, I know you, um, your sister was also a CA that I worked with. So I wonder what your experience is like with that. Yeah, um, I can't really speak on behalf of her, but like growing up as myself of, as a black male, like same thing as you, no sleepovers. And like, we couldn't go over to like friend's house and stuff like that. And like asking them, it would always take like at least three or four business days to get a yes or something. Minimum. Minimum. <laughs> Minimum. Yeah. And so like, yeah, I think, I think like growing up, I don't think, I mean, I'm the third child. So I'm all, um, so like I have an older brother, an older sister, and then it's me. And so maybe my older brother was like the prized child, the first child, and it's a male child and stuff like right. that, and my sister and then like me. So I don't think I experienced as much of the privilege of being like a male child, but I think in our family, it was more so equal, but we are all pretty sheltered from the community around us, I think, as immigrants. Oh, wow. And I think my sister probably did, um, was like the most she sheltered. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's real. It definitely is. <laughs> yeah. Growing up, you said you lived in different communities, you lived in the Southwest and the North Northeast. So I know that in the media representation in an area where predominantly Black people or colored individuals live, there are different terms that are used. So like it could be called the suburbs if it's like more white people, like Chinatown's more Chinese, Little Italy is more Italians. But when black people congregate, it seems to be most often referred to as the ghetto. And then we all know the stereotypes of what the ghetto is, uh, which are all negative. So I just want to know are the slums and stuff like that and places that need to be gentrified later in life. But I just want to know your thoughts about living in that area. I'm like, yeah. It's so interesting because living in the Northeast, I never, I never thought I was in the ghetto, you know? And um, it's also important to realize like in the Northeast, there's the neighborhood of Coral Springs and Coral Springs is a pretty wealthy community. Um, of course, like not everyone in Coral Springs is wealthy, but there are houses um, surrounding the Coral Springs Lake and they're like million dollar houses. So I would say poverty isn't necessarily centralized in the Northeast, but you do see significant um, amounts of poverty in the Northeast. Like when I lived in the Southwest, my family and I, we were still in subsidized housing. Like we weren't living the life, you know? So there are pockets throughout the city. Um, nonetheless, the Northeast is still the most diverse part of, of Calgary, um, hands down, like without a question. And I don't know. It's really tricky. I guess I know sometimes jokingly, my sister and I will refer to the Northeast as the hood, but it's, I don't know. I think we don't refer to it as the hood it, talking or it, it's not related to it's being ghetto or it being um, like a slum. It's more like the culture and the vibrancy of the Northeast is just different. Like being in Northeast Calgary has a different vibe it's a different energy there's a different sense of community it doesn't look the same as southwest northwest southeast calgary so but i know in high school students would come to our school and be like oh you guys are so ghetto and talking shit i don't know um <laughs> so i think um i don't know i think language is really tricky because it's evolving constantly but i never felt like i was in the ghetto or that the Northeast is more dangerous than any other part of the city. Um, if anything, I think 
it has to do with the diversity. I feel like people refer to the Northeast or more diverse communities as the ghetto because of the people who live there, not because of like what goes on there, you know? Like the Northeast is a heavily policed area of the city because of poverty and a lack of resources. Like if you wanna really get into all of that, then you need to talk about the social determinants of health, like the lack of access to um, walkways or bike paths in the Northeast is incomparable to what you see in the Southwest. And walking to like healthier uh, food options, ridiculous. Like you can't walk to a Starbucks, not that Starbucks is healthy, but you can't walk to a Starbucks in my neighborhood um, without walking for at least an hour. You know, whereas you can go to McDonald's, there's Tim Hortons, like the cheaper, more fast food type places are super accessible. And that's something that really mimics what we see in, in the US when we talk about black communities and food deserts. So there's a lot of layers to it. And I, I'd say it goes back really to systemic racism and, and language being a part of how racism is perpetuated, which is why we use terms like ghetto or the slums or the hood um, and Northeast Calgary is very, I, I always say it's the heart of the city. It's the heart of Calgary. Um, and you really can't understand what it means until like you live in it and experience the sense of community that, that exists there because it's, I wouldn't want to grow up in any other part of the city. I'm so sorry, Angela, you deserved better girl. <laughs> oh my gosh. I remember you talk about how it's a really heavily policed area. And I, this just brought up a memory of when we went, I think to Jollibee, right? Yeah. And we saw a police car and you're like, oh my God, Angela, it's like, it's like the police. I think you're joking, but you're like, oh, like, yeah, like we gotta like be careful. And I was like, what? I was like, it's just the police. Like, I don't, like, I just, that, I mean, that state of mind was like, I never really paid attention to the police. I heard a police car, like whatever. Like I saw police walking around and be like, okay. Like it didn't really affect me because I didn't have any like negative experiences with that so I was wondering if you had any like negative experiences or how you think that being in such a heavily policed area kind of affected your mentality around mm -hmm. I guess, the police force or how you acted around them that's really yeah it's a difficult question to answer because I recognize that I am a light-skinned black woman like I am not targeted by the police. Um, and they don't really, I don't feel that they look at me sideways or that they look at me different. Um, but I do recognize again, like my high school in particular, there's a lot, a significant South Sudanese population and they are incredibly over-policed. Um, you know, they often are dark-skinned black individuals, especially uh, the males in that community. And so witnessing that firsthand, not only in high school, but seeing my sister's friends go through that is a really jarring experience. And so it's also very confusing as a child when, you know, you go to school and there's the resource officer and people present officers as very friendly. They're your friends, they're here to help you. And yet you go home and my dad had a really awful experience with the police where he was like physically assaulted by the police. And this was before I was born. So before 97, it was probably like mid to early nineties. And when he told me that story, I was like on the verge of tears, just thinking about 
what my dad must have been thinking, especially he has very limited English. So it's a very conflicting position to be in um, because I don't feel targeted by the police, but I see how they target my community. Um, I've had one negative experience, but it wasn't, um, it was more verbal. Like the officer that I was talking to was just very rude, just like direct and not very compassionate or empathetic for like the situation that was going on. Um, yeah, I do recognize that policing needs to look different. Like what the way it operates right now isn't working for my people and it isn't working for indigenous people has never worked for indigenous people and it's not working for racialized communities overall you know so and I don't know Angela what your experience is um, with the police but I know in northeast Calgary there is like a significant Asian population and um, there are I'm not familiar with the gangs in Calgary but there are particular gangs that are um, dominated by certain Asian individuals and they are even if you're not part of that gang or not affiliated, you see gang suppression units walking through restaurants in the Northeast and they just stop at every table and just stare you down because they're looking for people. But it's a very hostile um, environment, I think. And it doesn't have to be that way. I think that's crazy. I've literally never heard of that. And I think it's because again, where I grew up is a very white dominated, like pretty wealthy community yeah so I mean like I barely saw police like I like didn't even like see I barely and I, I just like hearing that that it's just they just casually walk around is so crazy to me because I've never experienced that in my life and I've I don't know that's mm. wild to me and there's a there's a lot of um Filipinos in the southwest as well mm -hmm. um but again I think it's because depending on where they live they're viewed very differently. Mm -hmm. Police officer wouldn't go to some random Filipino person just because, you know, of the right. way they look and stuff. But yeah, I think it's very much the split of the city. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know how this came to be, I guess, like where it started, like um, what, what made it be this way. But I don't know. I think it's definitely where you reside in the city affects how you're treated by mm -hmm. I guess, the police. But also where you reside in the city is often, and not always, this is not like a generalization, but often is an indicator as to how your family came to Canada. So, you know, when you look at certain Asian communities, um, certain, when you compare different Asian communities, you know, some of them came to Canada as uh, refugees or just as immigrants, either fleeing violence or, or poverty. And then others came here um, as well-established with businesses back home. And I think you see that particularly in the Brown community in Calgary, where they're very um, often very established with businesses, both in Canada and back home. And so I think it's intimately tied to wealth and resources, like economic resources. And there's this term called the localization of poverty or uh, the racialization of wealth. So I think it's hard to know. It's like the chicken or egg, you know, like what came first? Mm -hmm. And I always say systemic racism. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I can't explain it, but um, yeah, it's tricky. Timmy, where did you grow up in 
I grew up in the Northwest, so I grew up in Evanston. So, like, similar with you, Angela, like, it was very rare to see, like, police cruisers or, like, people, like, in plain clothes just walking around. And, like, until, like, recently, this past summer when, like, I joined the yeah, Facebook page and there were a lot of reports of, like, people, like, stealing and, like, the packages from, like, Amazon being dropped at your door, being missing and stuff like that. And ever since then, I saw, like, a pickup in, like, the amount of cruisers that were, like, just driving by. I was like, this is, like interesting so i guess like they're doing it in response to, like crime in the area so i think it's interesting that like in like certain areas just by habit they're just always there yeah it's also like when you think of campus you see like unfortunately as community advisors we recognize that sometimes students engage in recreational activities that are not acceptable in residence and certainly not allowed on campus. Um, but do you ever wonder like, okay, like we don't see cops like pulling up on campus, like telling these students like, hey, you can't do that, you know? I know we have campus security and they're totally like a separate entity, but I think that's really curious to me, like why on campus? Mm -hmm. And obviously you could ask anyone even individuals who haven't been on a university campus, they would understand like, oh yeah, I'm sure you would find recreational activities happening on any university campus, but that policing presence isn't, isn't, um, doesn't exist there in comparison to racialized communities where those people are often experiencing poverty, you know? That's really interesting to think about. I think it may be also, I guess the students are kind of protected by the name of the university or the university itself. Like, I don't think yeah. the university would want to attract a bad image to their name. Exactly. Mm. Um, so I think that's why, you know, everything, a lot of the things are very held, like they're dealt with very low key. Privately, mm -hmm. yeah. Always very privately, kind of. yeah. So I think that's that plays a lot into, I guess, yeah, reputation. It plays a big role in everything. Yeah. Um, so, and speaking of kind of reputation and stuff, I want to talk a little bit about um, like stereotypes. Mm -hmm. So, especially like in the media, um, there's a lot of like stereotypes about the black community that are brought up. And I want to know if like you've ever experienced or if that's ever affected you in your real life with like either growing up people making like jokes mm -hmm. microaggressions um all that stuff so mm -hmm. yeah that's a great question i think um in a lot of ways i've been very privileged in that i don't i don't think i've ever really experienced um i don't think individuals have stereotyped me not to my knowledge but I recognize that I am the quote unquote model minority. So I speak in ways that is very digestible for white people. And I dress in ways that are very digestible for white individuals. Um, and I don't really challenge um, Western values or Western beliefs. And granted I was born and raised in Calgary. So to a certain extent, it's most of what I know. So in that case, yeah, I wouldn't say that I've really experienced stereotyping, but I know my sister, my younger sister, she's a lot more integrated in like black culture. Um, and 
She dresses in ways that I think she likely would experience more stereotyping and speaks with a lot more slang and, and um, maybe terms that aren't, that white individuals probably don't know or don't know how to use. So I'm sure her experience is very different, but that model minority aspect has really benefited me. And I can't tell if it's something that's inherent, just like this is who I am, or if it emerged as like a means for self-preservation, you know? I think that's really interesting because you said yourself growing up, you were a people pleaser. Yeah. So I'm wondering if it's like, is that a way for you subconsciously to be like, like, oh, if I talk this way, it's going to make everybody else more comfortable or happy. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. And that's really interesting to think. It's also tricky because my parents didn't speak English. Like English is not their first or second language. So my mom my mom's English is pretty strong, but still not like, she's not perfect. Um, she makes a very broken English for lack of a better word. And my dad is like even worse. (laughs) So I don't know that I really had the opportunity to explore language in the black Canadian community, especially because my identity as an Eritrean sort of supersedes that of being black. So my experience with the Black community was really the, my experience with the Eritrean community or the Habesha community in Calgary. Yes, but I know what you're saying, yeah, about me being a people pleaser. I'm sure that has, that's intimately tied. Yeah. What about you, Timmy? Um, in what regards? Like stereotyping as a Black man. Again, to my knowledge, I don't think I have been stereotyped. I'm sure I have, but like just never I think it's more microaggressions and I just I just got used to it mm-hmm. and so like in my own cope mechanism similar to yours about being a people pleaser it's just I'm just quiet because mm-hmm. I like they can't hate me or they can't say anything about me if they don't even notice me or if they don't know I'm here so wow. I just kind of like blend in at some points like in some point that's why it's like so hard for me to talk in certain situations because like it's still like constant in my mind mm-hmm. um and so yeah that's wow. my like experience with stereotyping. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to talk about cultural appropriation and like things like that. I know that like in the black culture, there's some certain things that are termed more desirable than others. And I know that like sometimes not having those traits or those qualities, it's kind of like off-putting and it's really like damaging to the mental health. And I'm just wondering if you'd have any comments about that. Yeah, cultural appropriation, it's a lot more visible today. I think like, even though we're having these conversations, it doesn't seem to really stop white people or even non-white people appropriate black culture. And I think people get very confused thinking, oh, I'm not appropriating black culture. This is like pop culture. This is popular culture. Um, But popular culture like is influenced by black culture. And I think people don't understand that enough. So it's tricky. I know I had a conversation with a friend who talked about how growing up they had braids. And so they were asking me, and they're a white individual, they were asking me if that was appropriation. As a kid, they had braids. And I thought to myself, like, well, probably not. Like, it's being kept out of your face. Like, you're a kid, like, don't know how to sort of take care of yourself. Or I guess your awareness about your body is less, um, less informed. Um, So sometimes it's hard to discern what is appropriation and what is, I guess, just a form of human behavior. But I think I'm most offended by it when it comes from people of power and influence. 
and people who seek profit. So the Kardashians are a really popular example, um, but they're not alone in that. So that's why I'm very like skeptical of celebrity culture and watching celebrity culture sort of fall to the pits has been quite entertaining. <laughs> but um, yeah, appropriation is really tricky. And I'm always fearful of, and this is probably also me not wanting to be confrontational. I'm fearful of um, calling it out when I see it like white people wearing dreads or um, even individuals who aren't necessarily white, but who aren't black, who use particular uh, slang or language in their community that they think is, oh, it's just street culture. This is just pop culture. Uh, is this on Twitter? It's all over Twitter. Like that's where I learned it or TikTok. And they just don't understand that it's black creators, black youth, black activists that are really at the root of a lot of these um, cultural movements and cultural um, moments, I guess, especially on TikTok. Like some of these white TikTokers blowing up for their dances. And when you go and you look at who created that dance, it was a black woman or it was a black girl. And so that's something that's really hard to, to continue to watch, but I don't really know how to fight against it either. Other than um, I don't engage with white content. So I follow black creators. I don't follow white creators. Um, I read black authors. I don't read white authors. That's enough of that. I had 12 years in education reading white people. Um, so that's been like my radical step into combating cultural appropriation. It's just stepping into uh, consuming black art. Yeah, I think you said something like really like important about like most of what we see as pop culture is influenced by African culture. And I was, I remember listening to something by Drake and he was essentially taking credit for the boom of Afro beats, like in like modern culture. I just like, sir, sit down. Don't worry. It's not, this not your down. area. It's not your Drake, area. He needs to take multiple seats <laughs> because this guy's from Toronto, Canada. Like we also have to make it very clear. Like, Black culture often, I think, can also mean African-American culture. I do not understand African-American culture. You know, I'm not African-American. Um, and African-American culture is very different from African culture. You know, like there are so many nuances in the black community that people just overlook. And so Drake saying, oh my God, have multiple seats, sir. Multiple. Right. That was just like, sir. He was like, and he said it so like, smug I was just like mm, I, hate, I don't like this guy right now and I was just like this is not cool because you can't say that like I don't know it's just yeah mm -hmm. no I yeah. feel like that and you touched about something really interesting um talking about how white creators always get the credit for what black creators like made or created or founded and I think this is very interesting because I've always had the, like, I've, like, observed that um, the standard that Black people are held has, is so much higher mm -hmm. than the white person, as in they need to achieve so much more in order to have the same respect mm -hmm. for a white person who's achieved less or something like that um and I just think that is so I think that's something that's not really touched 
like talked about a lot. Um, again, like a lot of people are just starting this dialogue, um, but that's something I've talked a lot about with my friends. Um, it's just like we're held at, or like BIPOC people are held at such a higher standard where we need to reach these goals and mm. achievements and everything in order to have the same respect as someone who, right. I don't, don't want to say bare minimum, but like, you know, doesn't have to reach the exact same goals. Honestly, so. that is like white mediocrity will keep <laughs> you anywhere. Yep. <laughs> like being mediocre as a white person, it's so easy to reach success or so yeah. much easier, I should say, mm-hmm. than being um, a BIPOC individual. And I think it goes back to like, even like the politics of beauty, like being pretty definitely helps you in a lot of cases, like you should look into being a pretty person and facing criminal charges, like that works to your benefit. There are these implicit unconscious biases, but on TikTok, it's so Mm -hmm. obvious. I think it's because it's the app of like 2020, 2021 and Angela's all over TikTok you should check her out. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Drop your at really quick. Oh, God. <laughs> but it's it's wild. It's so um, discouraging. Um, and as if I was a Black creator, I would feel this, which is why it's so important, I think, to create spaces for Black creators, um, for Indigenous creators, for people of color who create art. And my friend, um, he started this, like, magazine. It's called 1919 or 1919 Meg, you should look us up because we're coming out with our fifth issue of our magazine, but it's a space for black indigenous people of color to share their art, either writing or um, their design, graphic design or painting or drawing or whatever it might be in a way that's like unmanipulated and um, unedited. Like it's really a community for um, people of color or BIPOC individuals that's led and directed by Black youth and young adults. And really creating more spaces like that, I think is going to change the way um, we celebrate artists, you know? Even you look at the Grammys and like the Grammys, these people couldn't even recognize Lemonade, Beyonce, you know what I mean? They gave it to a white woman whose album was fine, it was good, but it like, when you compare like the two cultural moments, it's so incomparable to me you know yeah and that's so exciting to hear I didn't know you were doing that so where can they find is this like online or what yeah so they can go to 1919meg.com or on instagram it's 1919meg at 1919meg we also have um, a podcast that we do um or it's like a radio show so it's 1919 radio on soundcloud and yeah our goal is really to be a very um, like community-based organization that is um, like aims to create knowledge sharing and knowledge building opportunities for specifically Black youth, but really Indigenous youth across Canada and and people of color across Canada more generally. So we have a lot of a lot of like things happening in Toronto and Calgary mostly. Those are like our uh, chapter cities, quote unquote. But um, we're definitely growing. And so our next issue, it's called Free Dreams. And the whole goal is to encourage individuals to think about like, how can we dream in a way that encourages and facilitates like freedom? Um, or like, how do we liberate our own thoughts and our own ideas and our own dreams? 
And so there were plenty of creators across Canada, all BIPOC, um, that will be featured in the mag. So there, it's $10 if you guys want to check it out. It's very affordable. And all of the funds go back into the community where we don't make any profit. We don't get paid. Rip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I can verify. What was that? I can verify. I just went to the, uh, to the website. You can check it out at 1919mag.com. Um, they have some great stuff. I went on to their Instagram as well. So you should do the same. Yes. Um, I wanted to ask, what is the inspiration behind the name 1919? Mm, so my friend actually started this. And um, I, well, okay. So the story he would say is that um, 1919, the year 1919 was a really prominent year for various like social and activist movements in the world globally. Um, so that's what he says. But really, I think it's because he was born on the 19th and it was the ninth month of the year, but he hates that story because he thinks it's very like self-centered. Um, <laughs> I think it's beautiful though. I think it honors like his brilliance as a black man. So, but he always says 1919, the year was really prominent. Um, yeah. All right. And I think we probably should wrap this up because we talked for a while, but last thing, um, what, do you think, or what's like one thing that you think we need to do as a society to like really move forward with this movement or like actually make a difference rather than just mm -hmm. staying stagnant in where we are? Yeah, that's, I don't think there's just one thing. There's like millions of things, but I think a place to start would be to know your place in this movement and to respect the place of other individuals in this movement. So myself as a black woman, my anti-racism work looks like therapy and healing trauma. Like I need to work through some of the, um, the trauma that I've experienced as a racialized person or a racially minoritized person. And I think other BIPOC individuals need to do the same as well. It's a very individual journey. And, I'm, and Angela and I talked about this last year, which I think is so relevant, but we were talking about how our identity as women, as women of color, is strengthened when we are surrounded by women of color. And I think that's why like our sisterhood is so beautiful to me. Mm -hmm. And I think white people in this, their role in anti-racism looks very different than the role of marginalized communities. Um, I think it includes a lot of education, um, a lot of like self-directed work, a lot of ego work, um, and I don't know that like we're really going to get there, not in my lifetime, but um, it's it's also really going to change as like demographics of the world change. Like we're becoming more and more homogenous, for lack of a better word, just with the mixing that's happening um, in a more globalized world. Like people, there are mixed babies that don't look like anything, like they're very racially ambiguous. So I think that's going to really change the way that we see and interpret race as well. But really just look inwards and find find your role in this whole movement and and commit to it. Yeah. That was powerful. <laughs> Thank you so much for your comments. Thank yeah. you guys. 
thanks for coming. You're so well spoken. I don't know how this, like, I don't know how one can be so well spoken, but yes. Yeah. Thank you for bringing your uh, education. I learned a lot myself from just listening to you talk. So I really appreciate you, you coming on um, this podcast. So yeah. any last words? Well, thank you both. This is such a brilliant idea. I'm so proud of both of you to really bring this to the residents' community. So pat on the backs to both of you. I salute you both. <laughs> thank thank you. you so much. All right. Thanks, Bye, guys. Bye, everyone. Bye, Bye. everyone. Bye.